We're going to preach the whole chapter, but I want to read just to 12 through 18. And then we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us with this passage because it is massive, it is glorious. And I think when we're done, you will have a deeper, and I will too, have a deeper grasp and appreciation for who Jesus is. Verse 12 says, then I, this is John, turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like brownished bronze. And when it had been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hands he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in, in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I was dead And behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You may be seated. Father, I I acknowledge right off, Lord, there is no ability on my own to preach this text. I need your spirit, Lord. I pray he would come, Lord, and he would take the words of God out of this text. He would pierce all of our hearts our minds and Lord when we are done we would be able to answer in more fuller degree who Jesus is let us marvel Lord let us weep over sin let us rejoice over forgiveness and let us all see that encompassed in your son this morning we pray this for your glory in Jesus name amen well, last week we kicked off a series um, calling, calling it Who is Jesus? Our brother Jeff uh, started it off and he took us through the covenants. He looked at all the covenants of the Old Testament and proved that they all come to Jesus. They all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the covenant God. He is the covenant keeper. He is the covenant fulfiller of all that he has said he would do. And we see him now wrap up all those covenants in the New, custom, new Covenant. And that's why we did communion at the end of church last Sunday, because it's fulfilled in him. But what a question. It was some months ago, maybe a half a year ago or so, in an elder meeting, we were discussing just the glories of Christ, and one of the brothers said, hey, let's do a series on who is Jesus. I thought, what a great idea. Who is he? If somebody asked you off the street, what would you tell them? Who is Jesus? You might first say, how much time do you have? But what would be your answer? I Googled, what does the world think, uh, who does the world think Jesus is? Some less than profound answers came up. Some said a philosopher, philanthropist, a social reformer, a miracle worker. There was live interviews you could watch on YouTube, religious leaders, teachers, great leader, he's a martyr. 
Some said he was a man and dwelt by God. That's a lie. Some said he was an angel. Some say he's the brother of Satan, etc., etc., etc. The world doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus asked a question. Do you remember Matthew chapter 16? He says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, on and on. And then he said, no, who do you say that I am? He's very, very concerned with his people knowing who he is. He's very concerned with it. And Peter, speaking for the group, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a statement. I'm not sure Peter fully understood that statement. In fact, the next verse says, you didn't say this. God said this through you. But you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I almost picked that text to preach today. We'll tackle it another day. And it got me thinking, and I said, oh, Lord, I, I want to know you. I want to know you more. And I, I want your people to grasp you and who you are. And I think in today's culture, we have seen Christian culture, we have seen the one attribute of God that we love completely and are very grateful, but the attribute of love exalted above all his other attributes. And so love dominates all his attributes. And, and, and I think because we understand that and because it's personal, we know they loved us and I'm not against the love of God in any way, the love of Christ being shown, but there is so much more to Christ. And we must start to get our mind around who he is. That Revelation song gives you an, uh, a peek into today's text. He is massively holy. He is frightful when you get in his presence at some level. He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be used as a swear word. He is God, and every man will stand before him and bow the knee in reverent fear of him. And this passage, the introduction to the book of Revelations, blows your mind with who Jesus is. Oh, his love is in here, we'll see it. But he's both lion and lamb. He's judge and savior. He is not to be trifled with. And the ones that he is most concerned about after studying this all week and wrenching over it because of the depth of the text, he is most concerned with his church. Most concerned with the purity of his church. And I think we'll see today he is not happy with much of the church at times. And he gives seven examples, we'll see that, of the church, which I think extend to today. They've lost their love who are man-centered, not Christ-centered. And you'll see him, and I, I want to answer this question when we're done. I want us to go out and say, yes, I know a little more who he is. I want to know a little more who he is. Let me work my way down through this text with the first statement, Jesus, the living word, and the authority of his message. Jesus, the living word, and the authority of his message. Look at verse one with me, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, that's us, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. 
And so the book of Revelation, just in the understanding, the unfolding of the introduction verse there, is a reward to Jesus Christ because he was perfect, because he was humble, because he was faithful in his holy service to the Father. It's a gift God gave him to show to his, his, his bondservant. This is a gift. This is what God has said throughout his word. The father promised to exalt the son. And this is the start of what the rest of the book is about. The exalting and giving the son the rightful place. Paul caught on to this. In chapter 2 of Philippians, he said he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And let me tell you this morning, Revelation chapter 1 is the beginning of that story. Is the beginning of bringing every man, woman, and child to their knee. This is a gift from God. This is the heritage that he gave to his son. He has given the church and he has given the right to rule over all people. And we start to see Jesus in reality as we study this first chapter. Verse two tells us that who testified? John testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John says there, he is a testifier. He's witnessing by the authority of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice how those are two linked together. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You can't separate them. You can't divorce them. We talked about this in our last series on the word of God. They come together. The testimony of Christ is the word of God and the word of God is the testimony of Christ. You can't separate these two. And John says, look, I'm testifying by the power of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you all that I saw. Verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in them for the time is near. Well, I think this book is written to the church. And I think the example of the churches in chapter two and three are a teaching of church history. The way the church has acted and has it and how it has performed. Some have followed Christ, some have drifted. It reminds us that these churches here in this verse three reminds us those who hear, read, and heed the truth of this book will be blessed. Doesn't that what it says? Blessed is he who hears and reads, hears, and heeds what's written here. The time is near. So there are seven times in this book of Revelation that use this term blessed are they and this was two of them those who heed and those who hear the other ones in, found in fourteen thirteen. blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on those who die they're martyred for the name of the Lord Sixteen fifteen. blessed are those who stay awake ooh I like that one why we're not talking about dozing off in church here we're talking about dozing off in Christianity. Dozing off with our Lord on his throne. Not attentive to who is the ruler and reigner. 19.9, blessed are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, you don't want to miss this. If you're not a believer, you will not be at this marriage of the Lamb supper. Blessed are those, 20 verse 6, blessed are 
The blessed and holy are those who are part of the first resurrection, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have followed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church. 22, 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. Direct reflection of our cleanliness that we have, our righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. And then notice at the end of verse three, for the time is near, so be ready. This book is admonishing us to get ready. Now, I think it's so important because you and I know how busy our lives get and how quickly we're consumed with things that are not eternal. God's word's bringing us back to that this morning. Get ready. Get ready. Jesus talked about this all through his ministry. One of his great parables, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, be dressed in, ready, in readiness and keep your lamps lit. And you know that one. It's an admonishment to those who doze off, who don't take care of their oil, don't trim their wicks, are not ready when the master shows up. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Paul jumps all over this. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Persevere, saints. Perseverance. Jesus is coming back for his people. He's gonna judge the world and the lost, and he has the authority and power to do it. That's what this book's about. Second thought, Jesus, the sovereign king and his justified people, look with me at verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Now listen, we already sang this today. Who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, first of all, this seven churches, let me just a quick jaunt through there, just a momentary. This is something we need to come back and study in depth together. But these seven churches are called the lampstands, and you understand that found in verse 19 and 20. He's referring to these seven churches. They are lampstands. They're supposed to be proclaiming the bright light of Jesus in a dark world. And these seven churches are real churches. They were real churches in the day of John when he wrote this, but they are also a clear depiction of church history and even church today when you examine them. First, when he tackles is Ephesus in chapter two, one through seven. The problem with Ephesus is they've lost their first love for Christ. Christ is not central to them anymore. They love other things, it's crept in. The love of the world has started to crept into their, to their relationship with him. Their church is becoming worldly. They've lost their first love and it's a rebuke to them. The Lord does find um, goodness within them. He says, you hate the Nicolaitans. This was a group of people who combined pagan worship with Christian worship. And at least, at least the church said, oh, we're not part of that. In fact, the problem was they probably said, oh, we're not part of that. But the other problem was they didn't love Christ. So what happens to you when you do that? You become a legalist. And the church was legalistic. Because they still gathered and they still worshiped not like, oh, those people do. But they didn't love Christ. Smyrna. Two, chapter 2, 8 through 11. This is a blessed church. There's only two that, that are just called blessed within the seven. He says they're blessed because of their suffering and their tribulation and the poverty that they have. But they remain faithful to the king of kings despite those who blaspheme them. And it's very clear there's a group that came out of this church that blasphemed them. And the Bible, God calls them the synagogue of Satan. He does not like that. And in their suffering greatly for the cause of Christ, they're faithful people. Are we Smyrna? 
Pergam, chapter two, verse 12 through 17. The problem with this te- church is they're teetering on air. And why they're teetering on air is because they're allowing compromise within their church. They're compromising. They know what the Bible says to do, but they won't do it because they don't want to be targeted. They don't want to be persecuted. Does this sound applicable today at all to anybody in here? We are going to face these choices in in years to come. You will have the opportunity to compromise. Compromise in leadership. Compromise in, in membership. Compromise in all kinds of areas that's coming at you. Pergamum was doing that. Christ is not happy with this church. And you can see it as you read it. Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. Here are the ideas they've been comfortable with sin. They're not disciplining in the church. They're comfortable with sin. They're allowing sin into the church. They're not dealing with it. And here they are called out for allowing sin to stay resonant within them. Sardis, chapter 3, 1 through 6. I just, this is after studying, I said, there's a lot of deeds, a lot of programs, no life. Oh, they got everything going under the sun. They, they got every program there is to run. But guess who's not there? The Spirit. It's a spiritless church. Got lots of programs. Sign up for this, sign up for that. Go do this, have fun doing that. But there's, there's no spirit, there's no life in Sardis. Philadelphia chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Blessed. Here's the other verse, the, the group that's blessed. Blessed because they are faithful and will be rewarded, the Bible says. And there, there are another one here in this text that curses the synagogue of Satan. It's the group of people who say they're one thing and act differently and then attack the church. Twice the Word of God calls out that group. But they're blessed. Are we that church, a blessed church that are faithful and will be rewarded? Laodicea is the last one, chapter 3, 14 through 22. And the best way I could just sum this up is it's a lukewarm church because Christ is outside the church. It's a lukewarm church. He says, look, I don't want, I don't like lukewarm. Cold or hot, what are you? In fact, the great verses at the end of chapter 3 so often have been misused. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and I knock if you let me in. And people use this as a salvation verse. It is not a salvation verse. It is a context that Christ has been put out of the church. He wants back in. Oh, God help us if those verses are ever read of Grace Bible Church. That his son is not the center of what we do. This is the condition of the church in John's right at the end of the first century. This is written probably anywhere from 94 to 96 AD. I would peg it right there. It's the last letter. It's the last the completion of the canon. The, and the scriptures are closed now. And this is the condition of the church in this age. And you know what? It's a condition now. It's the same. We see it. We see ourselves in some of those things, don't we? And so this is what he's writing for. He wants the church to know who Jesus is. And when you know who Jesus is, you don't fall into the traps of some of these churches have fallen into. And so he writes intensively to know that. Look at back with me at verse four. Notice the triune authority given to this letter for him who is and who was and who is to come. This is God the Father here. 
He's putting his weight behind this letter. He's putting his weight behind this writings. And simply that means who, who, from him who is and was and was to come is that he is, has a timeless dimension. He's timeless. He's, he's boundless. He doesn't, he doesn't bracket it by time like you and I. Like all the gods of the world. They're all timeless. Worship Baal for a while, he died out. The next ones come along, the Greek gods, they died out. Today, the materialism is his God, and that one materialism dies out for another materialism. But not our God. He is forever. He is timeless. And he's the source of all blessing, of salvation, and grace, and peace to all. Notice it says, from the seven spirit who are before his thrones. This is a fascinating statement, isn't it? Well, this is God the Spirit. This is the triune God. This is God the Spirit. The seven refers to the fullness. We see this word used all throughout the Bible. Seven, everybody says, is a biblical number. But in reality, the word, the number seven is, shows the fullness of God. And in here, it's the fullness of the Spirit. He sees all things. His eyes are to and fro on of all of God's creation, seeing the good and the bad. He displays the glory of God, and he, he takes what is his and gives it to us, as Jesus said of himself in John chapter 16. And he blesses believers with grace and peace. But look at, chapter, look at verse five. We have verse four, the Father. We have the Spirit. And now we have Jesus, the whole triune God behind this, this letter. And from, Jesus, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. There he is, he's appearing. He's, he, he's, he's behind this as he speaks these words to John. And most of the rest of the chapter is a vivid depiction of Jesus. And look what they first call him, and we start a list now of who Jesus is. He's the faithful witness. Isn't that what it says? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus always speaks and represents the truth. There is no greater witness of God or anything else than Jesus Christ. He's the perfect witness. He's the perfect testimony of what is true, what is right. He can witness the perfect nature of God to you. In fact, John says you cannot know God unless you know Christ. He's perfect. He's the firstborn from the dead, it says. You go, what does that mean? You know that in the Old Testament, Elisha raised the young boy from the dead. There was, there's people raised from the dead in the Old Testament. There's people raised from the dead in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself raises people from the dead before his own death, burial, and resurrection. So what does this mean? Well, it, it designates his preeminence. He's preeminent. His resurrection is an incredible resurrection because it beat death eternally. Everybody else was raised. The young man with Elijah, um, Lazarus. Those guys all died again. They didn't beat death. Christ beat death, and he is preeminent in his resurrection. And a wonderful thing about this is when he beats death, the Lord Jesus, the Father of all, gives him everything for beating it. He becomes the Lord of all. Psalms chapter 89, verse 27, a great messianic passage here. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came up and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So the firstborn from the dead here in the book of Revelation records the fulfillment of the Father giving him all things. You have preeminence. 
And, and, and it's more than that, too, because 1 Corinthians says, because he raised his son from the dead, he'll raise you. So he's the firstborn. With him comes all the followers behind him. That's you and I. And he promises he'll raise you from the dead. He will not let you die in the pit. Notice he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, another great title here. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. This statement clarifies his sovereign authority as king and ruler over all thrones and all, over all the affairs of the world. And basically, I think what he's saying is Christ has the title deed to the earth. It's his. Belongs to him. Oh, kings and presidents and na- national rulers and UNs, all will come and go. And guess who will outlast them? And guess who those people will bow to? The king of kings. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. It all, he owns it all. And oh, look, look at verse five. Look what this leads us down into. There's a period there kind of in the middle of verse five. And and remember, verses are added later, so there's a flow here. To him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. So now now not only his majesty and his authority and his ruler it also brings us right back to that attribute we love so much, his love. He loves us. Look at that. To him who loves us. The king of kings, the ruler, the one who speaks the earth, speaks all things into existence. He holds all things together by his omnipotent hand, the Bible says. Someone said, well, how will, the thing, how will he destroy it? Let's just take his hands off of it. The world will be destroyed. That one, that glorious firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of kings, that's who loves us. It is an incredible culmination of attributes when you study this text. He loves you. And look what he did for you. He releases us from our sins by his blood. He releases you. What does that mean? The word loose and tie is the Greek word, comes from the word luo. It means to loose and tie, set free, break free, release, permit, break up, tear down, destroy, bring to an end, do away with, repeal, annul, and abolish. We could translate that word in our English in that many words. If he doesn't release you, you pay for your own sins. Does that scare you? It scares me. If he doesn't release you from your sins, his blood doesn't apply to you. It's an amazing statement. And notice how he did this. By his blood, this is the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remissions of sins. Somebody has to shed blood so you can be released. And that isn't enough. Look at verse 6. He makes, look at the position he gives you. And he has made us, believers in Jesus Christ, to be kingdom priests to God his Father Lord, I don't even deserve nothing. I don't deserve to take out the garbage in the kingdom. I shouldn't be in the front gate. But you make me to be a kingdom. Your people, in other words, a priest. Peter catches on to this and just goes crazy with it. He goes, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, or excuse me, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were not a people, but now you're a people. You didn't have mercy, and now you have mercy. Peter goes nuts with that, doesn't he? That's our position. 
men and women, boys and girls, who have been released from their sins by the atoning work of Jesus, have this a position in the kingdom, and now we're priests. That means we can walk into the most holy of holies and say, God, I need your help. Isn't that beautiful? All done by Jesus. Look at verse 7. He's coming. He uses the word behold here. It's, it's a glorious word, meaning the drapes are pulled back. We'll start to see what's happening here. Behold, he is coming. He's coming. He's coming for the blessed, and he's coming for the disobedient. He's coming for both. He's going to tread out those who know him and those who don't. He's going to separate sheep from goats. And he's going to rule and reign in perfect justice and holiness. Can you imagine that day when men stand before him and say, oh God, I've done this and this in your name. He says, get away from me. I don't know you. Or he'll say, welcome in my good and faithful. I have my kingdom prepared for you and all of its riches for you. This is what's going to happen. This is what he's going to do. He's coming in the clouds. This is a great reflection of the glory of God. Clouds are full in the Old Testament. Clouds led them, separated them from enemies, hovered over the tabernacle, hung on the Mount Sinai. It's always a reflection of the glory of God. And, and, and yes, maybe it's physical clouds. He'll, he'll come in, but it's a more reflection of his glory. He displays and notice that every eye will see. Paul said in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as well. Notice the two groups that are in here. This is interesting. Every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. There's two groups here. One are the Jews. Those are the ones that pierced him. You put to, get, you put to death the Lord of glory, Peter told them in Acts chapter 2. You pierced him. But, but look, some are going to see him. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, that's salvation, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him and on, and one, as one mourns for their only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of the firstborn. Oh, he came to his own and his own rejected him, John 1, 12. They rejected him. And then it says all the tribes of the earth. I love this. This is us. He's coming again, and he's coming for the Gentiles, all the tribes. That's us. We get included in this. Praise the Lord, huh? Amen? <laughs> Acts chapter 13, verse 47 and 48, Paul says, look, you Jews, you've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you killed him, and now you're rejecting his servants that are coming to you with the gospel for the salvation of your life, and now we turn to the Gentiles, and, and now Christ, and he quotes Isaiah, that you've been a light to the Gentiles, and he's bringing salvation to the Gentiles, and the next verse says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. In fact, it's so amazing that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed that day. Wow, that's a sovereign passage. And this is who's around the throne in Revelation 5, a lot what we just sing. It's every tribe and tongue and nations and people. And look at just the end of verse seven. So it is to be, amen. I like that. It's done. So it is to be. 
And look how God puts his stamp on this thing in verse eight. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Look at his stamp that he puts on this approval of this coming of Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is the omniscience of the Father. He uses the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. If you didn't know that, I think you probably all knew that. And what he's saying here is his knowledge is, is, is the knowledge of all things. It encapsulates this alpha and omega. It encapsulates the knowledge found in him. All knowledge is in him. And he's coming with certainty in these promises of his book. He knows how things are going to end and he's telling us these things. And if knowledge wasn't enough, and you still wonder, he said, who is and who was and who is to come. This is this timeless dimension. And then he calls himself the Almighty. Look, I'm all powerful. I put my stamp on the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to get his reward. Is Jesus your sovereign king? Are you his justified people? And then one more question before we go to our last point is are you longing for his return? See, I think we can answer the first two. Yes, Jesus is my sovereign king. Yes, I've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the third question is important because it, it, it now asks us where our treasure is. Do you long for him? Has the world captured you so much that you don't long for him anymore? Do you long for him to come? Do you long for him to set the record straight? Do you long to fall before him and worship him? I think we should more and more as we study. Last thought, and this is going to be a speed round. Nine through the end of the chapter. Jesus, the lion and the lamb, the judge and the savior. Times are tough as you begin to look at this set of passages here. The church has been persecuted. It's distraught. It's discouraged. Churches of Asian Minor have fallen away, as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 1, many of them referring to these churches as an example. And John writes this book because their desperate need of encouragement. The Holy Spirit moves John, inspires him to write every word of this because the churches desperately need encouragement. Think about it, it's been years since Jesus ascended. He's gone, he ascended in the cloud. The apostles watched that happen. Jerusalem and, and, and the temple have been absolutely destroyed by now. All the apostles are dead, but John, he's banished on an island of Patmos and the churches are in a disarray. It's pretty bleak when you think about it. But, but John is writing through the inspiration of the spirit to bring comfort to us. To realize there's one that opposes the evil that's in the world. There's one that's coming to set the record straight. There's one who's coming to defeat the enemies of the church. And John's vision is the beginning of this book is is all in present tense. What's interesting, he'll get to where he speaks future. But this is all written in present tense, which was fascinating to me. Meaning he wants us to know this now. He's going to take care of the events in the future, but he wrote in a very present tense so you and I understand who Jesus is. And despite the the sin of the world and the struggles of the churches, the Lord's not going to abandon his bride. Even, Even when we fail as a church, he is not going to abandon his churches, and you'll see that in here as we go down through this. Look at verse nine real quickly. He calls, he says, your brother, John, your brother, fellow 
fellow brother, fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom, perseverance, an eyewitness. See, John's saying, look, I understand, I've suffered with you. Here he begins to speak of the kingdom and perseverance, and these are all things that John says we are a part of. He's encouraging them, I've been there. And, and look at the end of the verse, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he comes back to the authority of the scriptures, the authority of Christ as he tells them this. Verse 10, he says some pretty strange things. He says, in the spirit, I just simply believe he was under the control of the Holy Spirit and God just transported him into a vision somewhere beyond, I think, human arena, human understanding where he went to show him all of these things. Can can you imagine what God showed John as the bull judgments and the seal judgment and the trumpet judgments are being poured on the earth and third of the population of the earth dies I mean, can you imagine what he went through, the anxiety as he went through this? But in the same time, as he probably came out of this saying, oh my God is in control. And he starts to relay some of these things to us. In fact, it says it was done on the Lord's day. There's debate whether this means the day of the Lord. I I, kind of lean towards, I think it was just Sunday. (laughs) What a worship service John got involved in there. And then it says a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And I just think what John's saying here is the voice of the Lord was so, such a blast of clarity of what was happening. A blast of clarity of this world that's a wreck. And even the churches are a wreck. There's a blast of clarity. And this loud voice of the Lord is equal to what we see of God. Exodus 19 says the voice of the Lord sounded like a trumpet on the mountain. And then look at verse 11. He says, writing in the book, what you, write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Again, these are the golden lampstands that we see in verse 20. And it explains to us that these golden lampstands are the church. And this, he writes these and 12 times he says in the book, write this, write this, write this. And this is the first of them. And write them to the church. Don't write them to the world. This, is not, this book is not for the world. It's one of the things that bothers pastors when they try to take this book and make a movie out of it. It doesn't belong to the world. This book is for the church. It's a rebuke on the church at the beginning, but then it's, a, then it's an encouragement that he is going to fulfill all of his promise and he is gathering his reward that Father God has given him. Verse 12, after he's mentioned all these churches that he is to write them to that we looked at, he says, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. He looks and notice what he sees. He sees sees seven golden lampstands. He sees the church. And, and it's interesting, there's seven because there's that complete number again. It's, it's, that's why we think he's, it's not just these seven churches, it's talking about the whole of church history. It's, it's church, it's those who follow him, those who obey him, those who are disobedient. He sees it. And, and notice their golden lampstand, this is precious. And Jesus is standing among them. Look at verse 13. In the midst of the lampstand, I saw one like the Son of Man. He's standing in amongst the church. Whether they're faithful or disobedient, he is there with them. He doesn't abandon his bride. This is a faithful husband. He's faithful. He will not leave them. He will discipline them. The Bible promises, I will discipline the ones I love. If you're you're living in sin and not following God, he's coming after you. And he'll come after a church and discipline a church that doesn't do it. 
But he's there among them. Don't miss that. I saw him, one like the Son of Man. He's standing in the midst of them. And then notice the description that John begins to give us. He's clothed in a robe, reaching to the, to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Whoa. What is this? This is the one who never leaves, who is always with us from the end of the age to the end of the age. He gathers in our midst, even to discipline us, but he's wearing something particular. He's wearing robes. And, and yes, we see Prophets wear robes in the Old Testament. We see kings wear robes, but no greater do we see one wearing robes than the high priest. There is great detail in the Bible about the robes of the high priest. And so here, the Bible's teaching us that the one standing in the middle of the church is the high priest of all. He's the intercessor. He's the one who comes. He's the one who was tempted but never sinned. He was the one who made propitiation, carried his own blood before the Father and made atonement for his sin. He's the one that brings you to the very Father. He's the one that takes you and presents you. He's the one that defends you before Satan who blames you and, and, and challenges all your things before him. He is our advocate. He is the high priest standing there in the middle of the church as our intercessor Look at verse 14, fascinating statement. His head and his hair were, like, were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. You go, what does that mean? I don't know. I'll give you some thoughts here. But, but it's directly out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel's vision sees this. He says, I kept looking unto the thrones were set up, and the ancients of days took his seat. His vestal was like white snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. I think John's just taking, it's the same vision that Daniel had. It's the same Savior. It's the same Lord Jesus Christ holding his throne. In fact, what it tells us is it affirms all the deity of Christ He's absolutely God. He possesses the same attributes of knowledge and wisdom the Father does. The white hair tells us that he is wise. He holds all knowledge. He holds all wisdom. Has the idea of bright and blazing and brilliant. It symbolizes Christ's eternal glory and holiness and truthfulness. His eyes like a flame of fire. This is Christ's ability to see all things and search the depth of the church and burn out sin amongst us. He does that. He loves us, and, and what father, what careful father does not love his children and want to deal with sin so that their children don't, don't crash and burn into sin, so our Lord does that with the church. Comes in with piercing clarity, and he sees all and knows all. The disciples were worried about the false teachers of the day in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, and Jesus says, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him we have to do with. And that verse warms my heart and scares me at the same time. One, I have everything to do with him because he saved me, he knows me, he loves me, but he also sees my sin. And I think this is why David said, my sin is ever before you, God. See, we work very hard to cover up our sin, don't we? 
One of the things we tell our men in our DTP class is stop hiding it. He already knows it. Just confess it. Lord, I'm angry. I'm lustful. I'm full of hate at times. You would know these things already, Lord, so I'm confessing these things to you. He knows it. His eyes are like the flame of fire. He burns out all the impurity. He sees all things. He puts light to everything that there is. Notice verse 15. These bronze glowing feet here. His feet were like the burnished bronze when they had been made to glow in the furnace. Not if ever you've ever worked with a forge, but it's fascinating to see metals light up and the glow that it puts off. And, and here it particularly is his feet. And, and you gotta think about this for a little while to understand what this means. And, and I, I believe it means that, that, that all men sit at his feet. They're all gonna bow to his feet. We see often when, when people understand who he is, the resurrected Lord comes in contact with Mary Magdalene, he, she falls at his feet. There's something about him, his authority, and kings always sat above their people, and there's a symbol of authority here. There's a chastening of authority here to the church and the world. He will trudge among his church with hot feet, and he will burn out those who are not really truly his church. And he'll do that. That's why they they give the message in chapter two and three of those churches that are not following him. He is going to deal with that. Notice, he says, his voice was like many waters. Oh, I think John knew this. I probably sat on the shores of Patmos. Listen to the waves crash on the shore. Christ was like a mighty roar of the surf. I don't know, you, maybe you've heard, seen both when you go over to the coast. Maybe you've seen there or been somewhere on a white sand beach, really nice, and the waves just kind of lap up, quiet and gentle, no riptides, just waves, nice waves that come in. That is the voice of our Lord at times. But there's another voice. And you've noted, if you've ever been near an ocean when there's a storm of brewing, the, the volume of the waves starts to increase louder and louder and you can be miles away from the surf when an ocean is stored when the when it's angry when you can look at that ocean you go it's angry and you can hear the roar of it the power of water churning and smashing onto the rocks and this is what john made it like it was a voice of many waters pounding the loud surf if you've ever been down at the bottom of bernie falls or some great falls and it's loud down there and you finally get away and you go oh i can hear again This is the voice of God. He is crashing on the surf. He is crashing into the church and wanting to be heard. In fact, we hear this. The Lord himself, Father God, said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Hebrews chapter one says that God spoke a long ago through the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, but in his last days has spoken in his son. And then look at verse 16. Who is Jesus? Well, in his hands he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I I have to go quickly, but just think about it. In his his right hand, he held the seven stars. The Bible tells us down here that these seven stars are the angels to the seven churches 
but I don't, I don't think they're, I, I think they're messengers. The word angelos can be translated angel or messengers. Um, and the reason is I don't think that John wrote to angels and angels told the church. I think angels told John and John told the, the leaders of the church. Um, that's my interpretation of that. But he holds these. Christ holds this. This leadership is important. He establishes leadership within the church. And the angels symbolize that authority to the church. And, and, and John's sending this heavenly God-sent message to these leadership there. And these seven men function as spiritual leaders to these churches. And there's, it just reminds you of how high God's calling is to church leadership. And not to be taken lightly. Not to be dismissed. Because look what comes out of God's mouth. Out of the Lord's mouth. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It's power and authority and purifying. It's, it can get you coming and going. It's double-edged. And this is Christ protecting his bride. He's protecting from the from the synagogue of Satan. He's protecting people from the outside, but he's also going in and judging within the church. And notice it says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow, well, what does that mean? I've had the pleasure of going on mission trips, mostly down to the equator. I like to go there on vacation sometime, but most of the time you're down there, and you go, there's many times you say this, man, is that sun hot. There's an intensity to it at the equator. And, and yet, this is so much more beyond that. His face is like the sun shining in its strength. This is the, the strength of the sun. And you do just a little bit of study of our sun and the ball of gases and the strength and how, 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 why our planet is so perfectly positioned so God could put his highest creation on it so it wouldn't burn up if it gets too close to him. I think this is what they experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. They, the Bible says his face shone like the sun. He was powerful. He's powerful, isn't he? This is Jesus. This is who he is. And then look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Anybody heard this before somewhere? Isaiah 6. It's almost identical. Isaiah gets into the presence of God and says, I'm a man of ruins. I'm done. I'm dead. I cannot be here. John feels the same way. He, he's not seen this modern day 2014, Jesus is love, he's your best buddy, you know, he's my girlfriend type of song. He's not seen that. He's seen a mighty, mighty God who can divide and conquer and take and own and judge and he falls like a dead man before him. You, thought it's, you think it's over for John, really? I, I mean, you just do. And look what our Lord does. And he places his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. Now there's, quickly, there's some fascinating thoughts about all this. One, the almighty God puts his hand, our savior puts his hand on John. He doesn't put his left hand, does he? And the Bible doesn't say he puts his hand, just ambiguous, What's he put on him? His right hand. Where does Jesus sit? Right hand of the Father. What does right hand mean? Absolute authority and power, but yet gentle. And see, this is why we believe that Jesus is both lion and lamb. He's both roar and he'll lay his life down for you. Do you see that? That's who Jesus is. That's what the world doesn't know. 
Many people are afraid of God. They're afraid of Jesus, so they go to mom. They go to saints because they're afraid of him. Well, you ought to be afraid of him. Unless you know him, unless he's forgiven your sins, and then he's, now he's a lamb, now he's that tender Lord that we love and we sing about. Because notice, he lays his hands on us, and he says, don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. I have removed your sins. Oh, I find such great joy in that. Notice that he says, I am the first and the last. When everything else has come and gone, I'll still be here. He's eternal. And then this is this last verse, and we're going to close with this verse. He says, after he says, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever. That's the Lord. He died. He died so you can live. This great lion, this great judge, this sword protruding, white-haired wisdom man, feet burning with fire for ready for judgment, laid down his life for you and willingly let man kill him. That's who he is. That's who he is. And notice what's in his hands. I have the keys of death and Hades. He has just made this loving statement. I've laid down my life for you. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I have the ability to save you. But don't forget, I have the keys to Hades and death. Let me close with that passage. Go to the end of the book. Go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. We've got to see what he's talking about here. Verse 11, then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Second Peter says, boom, big bang theory. There it is. He blows everything up. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, and it was the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things written, were written in the books according to their deeds. Somebody's keeping track. Chapter 20, verse 12. He's keeping track. If your sins are not forgiven, he's writing them down. And he, and here the Bible says, I saw the small and the great. This is the Hitlers and the drunk in the gutter. There is no difference. They all stand before the almighty God and he judges them according to him and they're cast into hell at that level. It's a fascinating set. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up. I don't think that's so much water. It's sea is people, uh, the, the world, the, the sea of humanity although he'll bring people from the sea who drowned and were eaten by sharks or whatever, gave up the dead which were in them, and death and Hades, here we go, gave up the dead which were in them. So there's those, there's the rich ruler, right? Lazarus and the rich man, he's there, the rich man is there, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds, again he says it. This is who Jesus is. He completely wipes out, forgives your sins, past, present, and future, and if he has it, he records them. That's who Jesus is. He is a loving, merciful God who forgives you of sins, and he'll judge you to the depths of hell if you don't belong to him. But we don't teach that anymore because it's offensive. 
And we rob people of the knowledge of who they're going to stand before someday. And notice what happens here in verse 14. And this is what I want to end with. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's what he has the keys to. And this is the second death. Oh, you do not want the second death. If you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I beg you to repent and ask him to forgive you of your sins and receive him. You do not want to see the second death. You need to be saved from that. Notice verse 15, if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So who is Jesus? Who is he? Some fuzzy, warm guy? Believe in me, we'll walk along the shores holding hands? I think he is in that in some ways. I love him, man. I'm joint heirs with Jesus according to Romans 8. But he's judge, he's ruler. He's authority to separate. He is, is he glorious to you? I hope after today you walk out, he can say, he is more glorious to me than he ever has been. I see him as the great lover of my soul and I see him as the great judger of the world. And he does both perfectly. Is he glorious to you? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to read your Bible more? Do you want to gain a greater understanding and love for him more? He's beautiful. Bow the knee. This is who Jesus is. Last question. I think we're going to answer this in a minute as Darren leads us. If you lost everything today and you only had Jesus, who would you be? If you lost everything today, and you were like Job, and you walked out of here, and someone came and said, all your family's dead, all your possessions are gone, and you have nothing, who will you be? Father, we thank you for giving us this chapter in Revelation, Lord. We thank you for writing it in present tense so we could grasp it for us today. Lord, our view of you, Jesus, is growing through this series, Lord. All these covenants that were written in the Old Testament, Lord, they were all pointing towards you, Jesus. They're all fulfilled in you. All this truth in scripture of this judge and righteous authority and burning hot anger that you have against sin and disobedience, and yet you lay your life down. You are both lion and lamb. You're both judge and savior. And so, Lord... We bow the knee to you. And Lord, if you decide to take everything from us, to strip us of all earthly possessions and the people we love, what would you call us? What will we be, Lord? What would we have? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.